Chapter 8 of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 8 Trillium knew her face had gone white when the hand touched her, holding her still. She could see her own dread blossoming as astonishment in the eyes turned upon her from the crowd. Why, those people wondered, why did she cringe because Mother Theodore had laid a hand on her arm? But they don't know, Trillium thought in panic, they don't know that she is keeping me from running away to save my mother's life. For the girl had no doubt whatever that mother had finally seen the note. The reaction, then, was overpowering when mother said quietly, Did I startle you, dear? I'm sorry. I know you have no relatives here tonight, and these friends of mine have never seen the convent. Would you mind showing them around? Trillium could only nod. Mother Theodore's hand pressed her arm. No, I'll not ask you, dear. I can see that you don't feel well. Oh, but I do. Trillium cut in quickly. She must dissipate all that alarmed attention. I'll be very happy to show your friends around, Mother. Well, just the library and the tunnel. Don't bother with the chapel, then. It's too late for that. Mother Theodore turned, smiling, to introduce a serenely middle-aged couple who loved Trillium on sight. But Mother watched them move away with the girl, and wondered how long they would detain her. This very night, she decided definitely, she would have her talk with Trillium. Mr. Penworthy was in the potato business in Nebraska, he told Trillium, buying, not raising. And his wife had been a schoolmate of Mother Theodore. The potatoes had necessitated the trip east, and Mrs. Penworthy's school memories had brought them to St. Aurelian's. Trillium, answering politely, managed to look at her watch. Nearly eleven o'clock. The play had ended half an hour ago. People were lingering. There was still time. Show the tunnel, Mother had said. The west, leading to the contemplative's house, would do, since they were only going to look into it. She led the way down the stairs, past the west entrance. Someone had turned on the lights in the tunnel and left them. Answering the Penworthy's questions, Trillium toyed with the idea of asking for a ride down to Marysville. Are you staying in a hotel here, Mrs. Penworthy? she asked. A motor court, a quaint little place, but they do seem to have hot water. My dear, you couldn't imagine how nice it is to have. So that was out. Mother would telephone the Penworthys the first thing after the prefect discovered Trillium's empty room. She could hear Mr. Penworthy saying cheerily, Oh, yes, gave her a ride down to town. Fine little girl. Showed us every cranny in that old rock pile of yours. That was how Mr. Penworthy would be. Speedily, then, she delivered the pair back to Mother Theodore, who still hovered in the hall, endlessly discussing other people's children. Thank you, dear, Mother said. Run along to bed now. I may drop in for a minute a little later. Again, that strange fear blanched the girl's face, and she stammered, Tonight? Oh, Mother. Let's make it tomorrow morning, Mother suggested, genuinely concerned. Come to my office whenever you're free. Good night, dear. Trillium turned and almost ran through the hall. It was startling to realize how much she loved Mother Theodore, with her kind eyes and slow smile. Mother had strength. She never would go chasing off into the night to escape from anything. The one a.m. milk train would never be the solution for her. But I'm not brave, Trillium admitted, or strong or sensible. I'm just plain scared. 
She paused at a window. A reassuring number of red tail lights still slipped down toward the gates. She could make it if she hurried. Mother wouldn't be proud of her any more, nor of Helen, for Helen was drawing out her minutes with Howard into scandalous length. Trillium had seen Mrs. Perry talking brightly with a sister, while she watched the dressing-room door for Helen, and tried to keep Mr. Perry from saying something. Trillium snatched her dark red coat from the closet, pushed her hat and gloves into the big pockets, opened the drawer of her dressing-table for the last time, and took out her purse. For the last time. She wanted to cry, overcome by memories of the three safe years she had spent in this room. Safe? she whispered. That was funny enough to cry about. Brushing away her tears, she put out her hand to turn off the light. No, leave it on. Then Sister Laurent would think she was coming back. Shutting the door softly behind her, she hurried to the east stairs and down. No one saw her. In the parking space, a car was just starting up. With her red coat flying, Trillium sped after it into the night. A quarter of an hour later, the east door opened again, and in that short time the scene had changed. Where the last bits of praise had fluttered around sisters and girls, there followed a strangely apprehensive silence. In her office door, Sister Osmond lingered, her gracious air very much askew. The prefects had herded the girls to their rooms, except for the few who still clung to their parents' company in the parlor, and the light-hushed voices made the only disturbance of the quiet. On the floor of the deserted hall, a single cigarette stub was an impudent reminder that there had been company. Sheriff Thatcher still believed that there was nothing amiss, but his young daughter, Kathy, could have told him that the atmosphere was supercharged. Behind closed doors the question ran, what had Helen Perry done this time? Had she finally eloped? Giggling, excited quite as highly over the retribution awaiting her as they were over her flagrant absence, the girls whispered about Helen in the play, and wondered when they had had so much fun. At the moment the east door opened to admit a frightened girl in a red coat, Sheriff Thatcher was seated in Mother Theodore's office, his mind divided equally between two preoccupations. The fact that he dared not smoke in this holy place— and impatience with mother's anxiety. Girls didn't leave their foolishness at the gates when they entered St. Aurelian's. In fact, the restrictions of convent life might well intensify a kid's natural yearning for the forbidden. Like his own longing for a cigar, the sheriff pondered. Never in his life had he wanted a stogie so badly as now, when he couldn't have it. This young Helen was a high flyer, boy crazy and rattle-brained into the bargain, if half of what Kathy said was true. She was kicking up her heels, and would be back in her own sweet time. A theory also held by Mrs. Perry, who was expounding it with an eye to doing as little damage as possible to Helen's chances for remaining at St. Aurelian's. The sheriff pursed his lips under his neat gray mustache, and nodded sagely, without giving much thought to it. Like Mrs. Penworthy, Jarvis Thatcher had been a schoolmate of Mother Theodore, and, since his motherless daughter was a sophomore at St. Aurelian's, he had attended the performance of Mustard Seed, and added his proud beaming to the universal glow. That was how he had come to be on hand when Helen's little escapade was discovered, and Mother had commandeered him, in spite of his protest, that the situation hardly merited a share of services. It was one of those times when a disinterested person would give anything to be somewhere else. Across from the sheriff, Helen's expensively handsome parents sat, her mother being gay to cover the strain, her father striving for nonchalance and failing, Behind her desk, Mother Theodore was too erect in her chair, 
stern, burning with righteous anger. St. Aurelian's was not a reformatory or a house of detention. When Helen returned, of her own free will, since it appeared they would never find her, she would be expelled for conduct unbecoming a member of the college body. Mother was about to deliver this pronouncement, when a soft tap came at the door. All eyes but Mother's flared with instant hope. Hers remained like granite. Come in. Sister Laurent poked her head around the door. Mother, excuse me. Trillian Pierce insists on seeing you. She says she has something to tell about Helen. Mrs. Perry gasped. Her husband said a low word to her, and the tension broke in the room. At Mother's nod, the sister disappeared, and Trillium entered, pausing unhappily when she saw the strangers. The pretty, eager woman, the tall man in tweeds, the second man who stood rolling an unlighted cigar in his fingers, his gray eyes studying her. He was large-boned and heavy, his face broody and pleasant, with the expected guilelessness of a fat man, and yet his bulk was not excess weight, because he was never designed for thinness. Without seeing him move, Trillium knew he would walk lightly, swiftly, to wherever he was going. He would turn up where one least expected to see him. Like here, what was he doing in Mother's office? She had met the sheriff at another school affair. Was it something concerning her, or her mother? Did he know why she had tried to get away? Trillium, you have something to tell us about Helen. Mother Theodore asked quietly. Of course the sheriff's presence had nothing to do with herself. Fear, in these days, needed neither stimulus nor reason. Yes, mother, Trillium answered. Do you know where Helen has gone? I think so, mother. The simple words had an amazing effect. The Perrys came to their feet. Mr. Perry quickly sorting through the emotions which crowded him and resuming the role of an angry father. The sheriff bit the end off his cigar. And then, abruptly, Trillium was angry. Helen, with her silly behavior, had ruined more than the rules of St. Aurelian's. She deserves whatever punishment she gets, the girl decided wrathfully. She wrecked the only chance I may ever have to get away from here. She made me get rid of my coat. Now I'll tell what I know, and she can take the consequences for once. She went to Pirate Cove to meet Howard Cooper, Allison's brother, Trillium said, determined to crush any excuses Helen might try to make. He came to the play tonight on her invitation. She told me she meant to meet him after the performance, and she did. Not Howard Cooper, Mrs. Perry wailed. Oh, she wouldn't. We have forbidden her to see him, or anyone. Helen's not a child to disobey. Her husband made an impatient gesture, and she subsided. Where is this pirate cove? he demanded, implying that he himself would track it down personally if no one replied. It borders our grounds on the west, sir, said Mother Theodore. The girls always regard it as a romantic spot. Then it's the place to look for Helen. Come on, Sheriff. Oh, Henry, not you. Mrs. Perry bagged, and with reason, for her husband was plainly in a mood to turn Helen over his knee. Let the Sheriff go with Trillium. Please, they'll bring her here. Have you anything more to tell us, Trillium? Mother asked cool, as if she were gathering facts in examination. No, not really, mother. Helen said she was going, and I know she went, because I heard her asking for me in the dressing room. Before I came, she was gone. That was the truth. Mr. Perry began what Helen would call the outraged parent routine, 
and Mother cut him short. The sheriff ushered Trillium out. At another time, the girl might have found it amusing to see Mother handling a business tycoon, as if he were a freshman. But now, hastening down the long hall and out along the west cloister walk, her fear for herself slid over her in fragments, like the shadows cast by the moon through the old stone arches. "'I wouldn't be too much concerned over Helen, if I were you,' the sheriff said in a light tenor that somehow suited his size. "'Some kids manage to wriggle out of things, you know. She'll be scolded, probably confined to the campus for the rest of the year, but she won't be permanently dented. This isn't her last secret date, by a long shot. Say, looky here.' The sheriff paused at the end of the cloister walk. Beside them was the door of the contemplative's house, and in the wall, sunken below stone steps, was the curious little door to the tunnel, all good solid masonry that in the moonlight took on ethereal beauty. Yeah, like old ramparts, the sheriff said softly, kind of bulwarks thrown up against the evils of the world. Only in the moonlight the world doesn't look so evil, does it? Trillian was uncertain, and as the sheriff started out across the lawn, she tucked her hand into his arm and kept close. The cove was not far, not more than a good sprint away, but in the quiet night there was an earthly quality about it. The bayou was not a river, because it had no current. It was too thickly overgrown to be called a lake, and yet it lacked the permanence of land. In the night, however, the hyacinths looked like a solid floor. It took only a minute for them to see that the shore of Pirate Cove was bleak and deserted, a hoot-owl gave a ghastly shriek, and Trillium shuddered. "'Helen,' the sheriff called. "'Helen, are you here?' The flutter of wings was the only answer. "'She's gone,' Trillium whispered. "'Yeah, that's for sure. Say, what are you shaking about, little lady? You aren't scared, with me here, are you?' "'I... no, of course not, Mr. Thatcher, but I'd like to know what's become of Helen.' Well, I'd say that's easy, if Howard has a car. Wouldn't they have gone joy-riding? Trillium laughed, and they walked quickly back through the shadowed cloister. Seated in the outer office, listening to the ominous rumblings of Mr. Perry, which greeted the sheriff's news, Trillium had her first leisure to think. She was alone. The door of the inner office closed. Helen's senseless dilemma preoccupied her no longer. One single inescapable fact absorbed all her thinking powers. Her own opportunity had gone by. There would be no further chance to get away tonight. What, then? Trillium, Mother said in the open doorway. The girl jumped. Trillium, will you send Allison Cooper down, please? Even if she has gone to bed, have her dress and come down. And then go to bed yourself, dear. You look worn out. Trillium hurried away. It was permissible to hurry, doing an errand for Mother. Outside Allison's door she stopped. Allison had three roommates, all chatterboxes, and with such news as Helen's brazen conduct to make them feel virtuous, Trillium's knock was buried fourfold. Opening the door, she peeked around it. Hey, kids, message from Mother. In the sudden silence, Trillium picked out Allison, the only one still dressed. She wants to see you, Miss Cooper. What about? She didn't confide in me but I imagine it's about Howard and Helen. My goodness, I don't know a thing. A big brother never lets you in on anything like that. Tell it to Mother, Allison, Trillium suggested, and I'd get down there fast. She shut herself out into the hall, thinking that Allison would make more haste when there were no answers to be had. 
Immediately, however, the door flew open. Trillium, he's not with Helen. How do you know? Well, Hallie was disgusted because he waited and waited and she didn't come, and he said she'd stood him up. He was sitting in the car when I went out with Mother and Dad, and he was so mad he wouldn't even speak to me. Oh, said Trillium. It came out in a hoarse whisper. Helen beside the cove, waiting, too early for Howard, and the black shadows around her. What had happened to her? Maybe she didn't think she'd better, Allison suggested. Trillian gave her a push. Go on, Al. Mother's in a tizzy already. Allison flew down the hall, wondering why she should be frightened. Trillian went on into her own room, dropped her coat on the bed, and snapped off the light to look out of the window. The scene was peaceful as ever, the guest house showing yellow squares against the blackness of the pecan grove. She wondered if Jim was really there, probably discussing the play with his two companions, unaware that his quarry had almost escaped. And so long as he doesn't know, I can try again. Trillium thought, and there will be no note to lose this time, nothing to give me away too soon. The flurry over Helen would claim all attention, and no one would notice if another girl acted a little off-key. Why, it's my golden opportunity, and I didn't even know it, she reflected. Trill, you hear? Mary Elizabeth whispered from the door. Trillium turned, feeling that she had just partaken of a reviving drink. Sure, come on in. You were super in the play, Liz. I haven't had a chance to tell you. Mary Elizabeth squealed. Oh, Trill, cover up that window. Hurry. Well, honestly, Trillium said. Accustomed as she had become to Liz's imaginative scares, this one, nevertheless, impressed her with a different quality. Mary Elizabeth's blue eyes were almost black in spite of the glare from the two study lamps, the overhead light, and the dressing table lady with the umbrella shade. And when she plumped down on the foot of the bed, her face was deathly pale, and she clutched her old orchid housecoat around her as if for protection. Trillium, being the handmaiden of fear herself these days, recognized Mary Elizabeth's state too well. Quickly she shut the door and sat down on the bed, knee to knee with her frightened visitor. Liz, what's wrong? I think I saw her, Trill. You, what? Saw Helen over by the cove. Well, naturally, that's where she went to meet Howard. I know, Trill, but... Mary Elizabeth's breath caught fearfully. When I saw her, there was a sister with her. A sister? Oh, now, Liz... I did. I saw her plain as day. She was looming over Helen. Only I thought the girl was you, Trill. You and Helen looked exactly alike in your costumes. You're so much alike anyway. A black-spangled darkness broke over Trillium, cold moisture coming out of her forehead, as she lost the sense of Mary Elizabeth's explanation. In her costumes we looked exactly alike. That was why we were chosen for the parts. We were to portray the twin virtues of faith and hope. And with the moonlight to deceive further, Helen could easily be mistaken for me. Has something happened to her because she looks like me? Mary Elizabeth had not seen a sister. That was pure imagination. But she had seen someone. Jem? What would he be doing over beside the cove? I wasn't going out with Nettie tonight. We were just making a date for Saturday. Mary Elizabeth rattled on. And I still had my costume on, and Nettie was. 
Well, anyway, I saw this girl in white, and then this tall, muffled sister standing at the far corner of the cloister, and I wondered who you were meeting, Trill. And then I turned to talk to Nettie for a while, and when I looked again, the figure had grown to a giant, and its hands were extended like great claws, and the face stood out like a death skull. Liz, stop it! Trillium choked but she could not halt the unrolling of the monstrous tale. In a soft, tense voice, Mary Elizabeth continued to weave her spell. When that horrible thing looked across at me, even at that distance, I felt my soul shrink. Inside I was jelly. I know I'd have died if Nettie hadn't been there. Did Nettie see her? Trillian whispered. Are you kidding? With me there? No, he didn't, and I... Oh, I didn't mention it. I know you stand in well with the sisters, so I wasn't worried, even if you were getting caught. Suddenly Mary Elizabeth seemed to realize what she had been describing, and her eyes widened in horror, and she clapped her hand over her mouth. Trill! Where did she go? It wasn't you! It was Helen, and she's still gone! What did that terrible sister do to her? Why, maybe she's punishing Helen for— The door opened at the same moment that a tapping sounded upon the panel and Sister Osmond stood in the aperture. "'Mary Elizabeth, it's much too late for visiting.' The two girls stood up from force of habit, and Mary Elizabeth said, "'I was just leaving, Sister. We were talking about the lovely evening, you know.' Sister Osmond smiled. She knew, indeed, that the subject was the missing girl and not mustard seed. "'Of course, dear. Now run along to your own room.' "'Sister, please, couldn't she sleep with me tonight?' Trillium begged. Sister Osmond merely smiled again and turned off all the lights but one. I think not. Helen will be back at any moment. It is much better that we keep to our regular routine. Good night, Trillium. The sister terminated her tour gracefully in the doorway, and all Trillium could manage was to whisper to Mary Elizabeth, Don't say anything. Before the door closed behind the two, the girl stepped over swiftly and laid her ear against the crack. They were gone. The hall was settling to quiet. She turned the lock and pushed the chair with its back under the knob. Then she sat down at her dressing table, staring at her image in the mirror. So the dread danger had not been imagined, Trillium admitted to herself, and knew then that there had always been a faint hope that she was wrong. The hope had been silly, baseless. The billikin belonged to Jim. In no other way could it have reached the campus. After all, who would make another person a gift of a broken statue, which had been of small value when it was whole? But what was Jem doing at the bayou? He had worn a cloak of some sort that made Mary Elizabeth see him as a nun. But that was not worth a second thought. Liz in the moonlight, in the distance from the west entrance to the cove, all were responsible for the deception. Jem's reasons for being there, that was what she must consider. Even a long time later, Trillium had but one answer. Jim had come into possession of the note she had written to Mother Theodore. He knew she was trying to run away. Why he should think she would go up by the bayou was a problem, but no more of a problem than his own presence there. He must have said something to Helen to frighten her off, so that she, instead of Trillium, had run down the long road and hitched a ride in a car. When she comes back, I'll have to talk to her, persuade her not to tell, Trillium decided. Exactly how she would manage to see Helen first, before the girl would be questioned by the sheriff, she did not try to work out. She would stay awake, listening, 
waiting. Outside on the grounds, flashlights bounded in long arcs, and men called, searching, their unbelief veering to dismay, as the groups parted and met, parted and met, always with the same news. No trace. Through her open window, Trillium heard them. Helen was gone, and whatever had happened to Helen was meant for Trillium herself. In some of the other wings, girls slept, but uneasily. At every window facing the front lawn, a watcher sat, her attention glued to the square of light laid on the grass for Mother's office. There were other squares as well from the long main corridor, but none with the fascination of that single one. It would go out, the girls knew, when Helen was found. While the sun came up and pushed the shadows back into the bayou, and the watchers yawned and went for a shower to wake them up. Down in Mother's office, someone finally remembered to turn out the light. In the morning softness, Mrs. Perry's face looked a little less ghastly. Who and Sheriff Thatcher came in and made a bungling, compassionate attempt to tell her what they had found. She fainted. He was able to tell her because Chris Archer and Franz Eric, having kept with the search party all night, had come back again to Pirate Cove. The place was still in twilight, but the twilight of early morning is revealing, and then they saw that it was only the moon that had given solidity to the hyacinths. The delicate bowls were crushed in a wide swath, and just under a gap in the trailing roots there floated a brown-soaked fragment of chiffon. End of chapter 8